A Zen teacher named Sion Shaku once said, Meditation is a way to lead you into your long-lost home. And this is why we're here. This is why we practice to find an inner home. We're always searching for home somewhere. And in practice, we see if we can find it where it can be found, which is inside. We might find ourselves in our lives with some sense of alienation or separation from our own life. At times, we can feel isolated from the life that we're leading, from our bodies, from our minds. We may feel at times self-conscious or insecure. Sometimes we may feel that we're pretending, um, pretending to do our work or pretending with the person that we're relating to, or sometimes even pretending to be a human being, just pretending, some sense of pretense occurring. In practice, we let go of pretense. In practice, we learn how to live our own life, which is the life that we have. Someone once gave me a card saying, all it said was, may you live every day. That was it. May you live every day. I thought it was a a great blessing, actually, because how many days do we have? How many moments do we have where we're not living because we're really not around for life? So I thought that was really just a kind of a a, a bit of a gift to to, um, live one's own life. In practice, we're attempting in our life, using our practice, we're attempting to make our experience our own. We're learning, in a sense, how to be at home, how to stay at home. Sometimes we can get the sense that the path is leading us in steps towards becoming, becoming someone, becoming a better meditator, becoming a better human being, um, becoming this or becoming that. Steps away from ourselves, in other words. Actually, the practice is leading inward. It goes in the opposite direction of becoming. It goes in steps directed inwardly towards ourselves into the reality of our own experience. And so what's asked in practice is for there to be more and more of an inner honesty, an inner acknowledgement of this human realm that we find ourselves in, an inner acceptance. And how this manifests, how we can see this, is through authenticity. And this is what I'd like to talk about tonight, is authenticity. The practice manifests itself through a sense of authenticity wherever we find ourselves to be, regardless of conditions, regardless of circumstances. But very much not only in a meditation center. Our practice has to be something uh, that can express itself in the world, in the life that we're actually leading. Sometimes on retreats, one gets a sense of inner authenticity. 
Well, maybe for a moment or two, maybe for a few hours, maybe for a few days. Um, you know, if you're on a long retreat, maybe maybe for a few weeks. And then often the experience is that one moves out into the world once again, and it disappears. There's no longer a sense of being inside of one's life. One feels swayed and pushed around by circumstances, both inwardly and outwardly. And we lose that sense of inner dignity, that sense of inner authenticity. In practice, what we're learning is how to live from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Rather than being moved around by life, we're learning how to live from the inside out. Insight, you know, we, we use this word insight, and you could say that when you break it down, it's inner seeing, inner sight. Obviously, it arises from inside. It's an inner seeing of how things are. It can't be given to us by anyone. We can receive a lot of help in practice, and at the same time, that inner sight is one's own. It comes out of one's own investigation, in practice, in life. What's important for there to be any degree of inner seeing is the condition of being present, present to receive insight. Insights may be happening a lot during the day. We see something, there's some some sense of seeing. But we oftentimes miss it because we're not present, we're not around. And so, Clearly, one needs to be around, and this is why we so much practice being present, this simplicity of being present, so that we can know insight when it arises, so that there's a receptivity, an inner receptivity, to experiencing, seeing in a different way than we do, seeing that is transformative, seeing that really changes the quality of one's life. When we see someone, or when we think someone is living in an authentic way, sometimes it doesn't have to do with what they're doing. There's sometimes just a presence that one senses in another person. We're really struck by it, and we know it when we see it. There's some way in which we're struck by the presence of authenticity when we see it in another human being. And sometimes we think that it only can be contained in others, and that we can't experience it ourselves. When authenticity is accessible to all of us, and it comes about through practice. So the question is how to live in more of an authentic way, which is something I assume all of us want to do. I was on the phone with my younger sister a little bit ago, and she asked me what I was going to talk about tonight, and I said, authenticity. And she's very receptive to the Dharma, sometimes just a word, and she kind of just doesn't practice that much, but she's inwardly very, very receptive. So she heard the word authenticity, and she did this around the word equanimity, too. Um, She just kind of, um, ah, authenticity. (laughs) 
I mean, just the word itself, it's kind of like it, 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 um, ex- it made her ex- expand a little bit and just kind of settle into her own experience a little bit more. It's cute with her because I can do it anytime. I mean, she'll hear it in one conversation and then I can say it in another conversation and she'll have the same exact response. <laughs> it's like the one word Dharma talk. <laughs> I can just say a word instead of give her the whole talk. <laughs> it's kind of convenient. So, how to live in this kind of a way? How to live with a sense of inner integrity, inner fullness, inner dignity, inner authenticity? Well, the major thing is to notice the ways that we're not. And what this has to do with is noticing any degree of movement out of the body-mind experience. Any time there is a movement away from our own experience, from knowing what our own experience is, we may find that we're lost a little bit, that we've lost something, that we've lost a certain presence of life. One way that we can notice this movement away from ourselves, and again, this movement towards becoming something rather than than resting within our own experience, has to do with the times that we may try to imitate others, have ideas about how others are or how others are practicing, sometimes thinking that just because they're uh, the other, that of course they know better than us. Of course they're more mindful than us simply because they're not us. And some degree of comparison, um, looking around and noticing that someone looks calm, I can tell you, you, you may already know this, but I can tell you that one can look incredibly calm in the hall and be wild inside. <laughs> and I know this really, really well. Um, you know, there can be a calm facade. And it's not that some calmness isn't happening, it isn't revealing itself, um, but there might be enormous energies in other directions as well, enormous agitation and chaos and anger. So. You can't tell by looking at someone else. And when we try to enter into someone else's experience and try to imitate that person, um, we're losing our own sense of life. We're losing our own sense of authenticity. I think it's important to remember that you know, the Buddha didn't try to imitate anyone. Um, the, the story of the Buddha is that he practiced with different teachers and at some point decided that he really needed to investigate for himself. And so he sat down and really, really investigated and found out something radically different than he had known. And I think that our path for each one of us is the same as the Buddha's, that we really have to make this practice our own, that we really have to make life our own, that of course we can learn from others, of course we can be receptive to um, love and wisdom in our life. And we, we need to. We don't want to be rigid or closed off to what's available to us. But when there is an imitating, um, we've, we've lost ourselves. Sometimes you can notice it on retreat when you're walking, you know, just innocently walking, doing your walking practice, and you look over and you notice someone else walking, and there's a very subtle shifting into trying to walk like that other person. 
I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's a very, very interesting thing. It's subtle, you know, but it's kind of like trying to enter into this other person who's, of course, walking correctly, you know, whatever that means. It's not possible to walk correctly or incorrectly, but we may um, forget this. And so it's kind of trying to enter into how somebody else is doing things. Sometimes in eating, it's the same way. On a retreat, um, in the silence, things get a little bit intense. And so eating across from somebody else, and you know, maybe I'm eating too slow, maybe I'm eating too fast, maybe I have too much food, I look so greedy. Maybe um, you know, I should go up and get seconds because that other person went up and got seconds even though I'm not hungry. Uh, just, just the whole kind of, of verbiage, the whole kind of commentary that occurs. And sometimes one can even notice it in a physical way, you know, that one begins to actually eat the way the other person is eating. Some years ago when I was practicing the noting technique quite strongly uh, with a teacher named Upandita, who is the big noting master, everything you do, you note it. And um, I had this really funny experience where someone was sitting across from me, happened to be a good friend, and I started noting for him. You know, <laughs> he was lifting his spoon up, so it lifting, lifting. Meanwhile, I was putting my spoon down. <laughs> Talk about trying to enter into somebody else's experience. <laughs> it really cracked me up. <laughs> but sometimes it's, it's blatant, and sometimes it's more subtle than that. But it's a way that one projects, in a sense, you know, leaves one's, one's own experience, thinking that another person's experience has got to be better than one's own, whatever it may be. There's a, a great Yiddish saying, if I should be someone else, who would be me? Yeah, which, is, which is quite good. If I should be someone else, who would be me? Now, someone would miss you. Someone in your life would miss you if you turned into someone else than who you are. Understanding that not one of us is exchangeable, you know, that each one of us has our own life, that each one of us is adding to this life in some way, or has the potential of being a beneficial force in this life, of adding to this life in a very beneficial way. Um, understanding the preciousness of, of each one of us. Uh, you know, understanding that we, we are not exchangeable, we are interconnected. We are intensely connected with one another. And at the same time, each one of us is of value. Each one of us is essential. Each one of us has to live our own life to the utmost. Another way that we sometimes can see inauthenticity is when we get caught in there being a gap between who I am and who I should be, how the world is and how the world should be. It's very painful to dwell in this gap with unconsciousness. I mean, if we know the gap is happening, it's okay. But if it's happening in an unconscious way, where there's a lack of acceptance about how I am, then we're lost. We're kind of swimming around between how I am and how I should be. And the bridge is, the bridge between how I am and how I should be has to do with acceptance, seeing if it's possible to accept how I am. 
seeing if it's possible to accept the isness of things. Even with this world, how this world is, how this world should be, we all have, I'm sure, quite sane and intelligent ideas about how the world should be, valid ideas about how the world should be, and yet the world is the way it is. How does transformation come about? You know, when we say to let go of how things should be, it doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean letting go of trying to uh, work in a creative way or uh, be beneficial forces or anything like that. It means seeing if we can first come from the isness, seeing if we can see the world exactly as it is, accept things as they are, and then from that place of understanding, try to create some change in ways where change is needed. But instead of blindly through ideals working on the level of how things should be, which is very, very heady, it doesn't have a whole lot of heart in it, the heart has to do with acceptance of how things are and then opening up to whatever wisdom is available to us so that our actions are skillful so that we're not blindly going in imposing our ideas on others or imposing our ideas on ourselves, but seeing if there can be a skillfulness that comes out of being with life. Um, I would just say through the heart, you know, really bringing acceptance and love in and then wisdom coming out of this. Another way that we can see inner inauthenticity is through any degree of clinging to images that we have of ourselves, clinging to a self-image. It's very, very interesting to just notice the various images that arise about ourselves. And we can certainly notice this wherever we are, whatever environment we're in, And when we're on retreat, because the mind is a little bit quieter, even though it may not feel that way it is, it's sometimes a little bit easier to notice the images that arise. They can arise constantly, or there can be a few gaps, and then they're there again. But it's very, very interesting to notice a self-image, which is not a problem at all, because it just arises on its own. But then to see if we can also notice the attachment and the clinging to a particular self-image. We can always notice the clinging by noticing how we get insulted when our mind or our emotions aren't living up to whatever image that we have of ourselves. There's always a sense of disappointment. There's always a sense of being disappointed. And that's the way we can see our clinging to seeing ourselves in a particular way, whatever way that may be. We can get very caught in our practice in kind of the good yogi, bad yogi syndrome. And oftentimes we have no idea what we're talking about. You know, when when we view ourselves as a bad yogi, from certain perspectives, that might be really good yogi. Um, You know, when we view ourselves as a good yogi, um, from a certain perspective, that might be seen by some people as a really bad yogi. It's it's all quite up for grabs, and it's really just our own perceptions. It's really sometimes where a sense of arrogance comes in that we think we know, 
what is good yogi, what is bad yogi. And, you know, the question is, in terms of authenticity, can we let it all go? Can we just not even be a yogi? Can we really just be in life from moment to moment? Can we be present and awake? Sometimes um, we can notice how we're imagining others judging us. We're just doing what we're doing. We're eating, or we're doing walking practice, or we're sitting, or whatever it might be. And it's kind of like there's this unseen audience, um, this unseen crowd of people uh, looking at you and judging you in some way. It can also be kind of um, the opposite, like this sense of grandiosity of others looking at you and clapping. You know, isn't isn't uh, isn't he walking well today? <laughs> or <laughs> you know, oh, he's so mindful when he eats. You know, <laughs> whatever it might be, like kind of approving of one in some way. And always, it's just our own mind. You know, it's really a way that we move out of ourselves when we do this. Presenting ourselves in any way at all is losing ourselves. It really is so. That when we try to present ourselves to others, whether it's a seen audience or whether it's an unseen audience, we've lost ourselves because it's an empty presentation. It's superficial. It's not really who we are. So we're presenting a particular aspect of ourselves and we're forgetting the fullness of life. We're presenting something that might not even be true, but even if it is true, it's very narrow, it's very closed, it's very tight, it's just one aspect of being. And, and in this, what I mean by losing ourselves is that we lose the entirety of our life, we, leave, we lose the fullness of our life, we really lose ourselves. In the desire for recognition, in the desire for external acceptance, we get pushed into an imbalanced place. And of course, the desire for recognition, the desire for acceptance, for external acceptance is fine. I mean, it's human, it's natural to want to be recognized and to want to be seen, to want to be accepted. And we might notice that in that need, there is a way in which things are a little bit askew inside. We're off balance. There's a certain degree of imbalance occurring. When I was reflecting on this about how there is an imbalance that happens when there is this need for recognition or or acceptance, I was flashing back to when I was on a gymnastics team in high school, and um, I was really bad. Um, when everybody would come in to to go to a meet, you know, to compete against others, everybody else would do a cartwheel, and I'd have to do a somersault because I could never. I was not able to do a cartwheel. So everybody would do these great cartwheels, and I just maybe a, two somersaults, salts or three. <laughs> I really wanted to be on this team, but I, I really, you know, I had no natural talent at all. But my event was the balance beam. That was my, <laughs> that was my event. And so, of course, the other girls were doing cartwheels on the balance beam, let alone on the floor. And I did. I was able to learn to do a few somersaults on the balance beam. I fell off, generally, 
maybe three times every time we competed, but there was, I, I still did have a lot of joy in it, believe it or not. <laughs> I just enjoyed the, uh, the, the balance beam thing and the, and the group and the whole thing. <laughs> but anyway, we used to practice in the gym, in the school gym, and the gym was kind of big, so we were in one corner doing, you know, the, the parallel bars and the balance beam, and people were, were doing the floor plan and all that stuff. The floor, not the floor routine, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> not the floor plan. <laughs> and all, all of those things. And over in the other corner of the gym would, was the basketball team. And there was a boy that I, I liked. And so when I was, who was on the basketball team? So when I was doing the balance beam, I would imagine his eyes looking at me while I was doing the, the, the balance theme. Now, as I said, I really, you know, really had very minute level of natural talent anyway. However, I was much, much worse when I was doing the balance theme, imagining him looking at me. You know, I was feeling that I was being recognized in some way. But, you know, and I, I peek every so often, and of course, he would never be looking at me. In reality, he, I'm sure he didn't even know I liked him. So he just would be putting the, you know, doing the, the lifting and the putting the ball in and everything. And I'd still, it was, it was just kind of an imagination thing. <laughs> High school. <laughs> but I would imagine him just intensely <laughs> looking at me. <laughs> and then I'd fall, you know, I'd get up again and then I'd fall. <laughs> it, was, it was painful. It was painful. <laughs> The outcome of this actually is that I um, graduated to being the announcer. <laughs> Everyone was, was, was kind about it, but I think they were a little relieved. I really lowered the scores of the, uh, whenever we had the meets. So anyway, I thought it was just a funny, though, flashback because of um, imbalance and then thinking about actually being on the balance beam. Anyway. <laughs> Another way that we um, experience a sense of inauthenticity has to do with wishing that something else were happening than what is happening. And how many times, this is why this is such a great exploration, because you can notice this so much during the day. There are so many moments of wishing something were happening that's not happening. Yeah. And you can see it on retreat, you know, planning to come on retreat, wanting to come on retreat, doing so many things in order to get yourself on retreat. You know, there's so many things that have to happen in order to get yourself on retreat. Being on retreat, not wanting to be on retreat. Right? Right? Or looking forward to not wanting to be on retreat. I mean, maybe it's not, you know, that bad, but, but there's fantasy life about what will happen when one leaves retreat. And then, of course, one leaves retreat, and what happens? One has visions of all the peacefulness of being on retreat. All the pain recedes into the, different, into the distance, and, and one just has this imagination about how one wants to be on retreat again. So it's, it's just very, very interesting to notice this phenomena occurring all day long. Noticing how, when we're wishing that something else were happening than is happening, that we're outside of ourselves. You know, we've lost our life in that moment. We can regain it really quickly, simply by noticing exactly what is happening. 
however comfortable or uncomfortable it is. But to notice that we're outside of ourselves in those moments is very, very good, very, very helpful. Recognizing that when we're yearning, when there is longing occurring that's not caught, that's, that we're not being mindful of, when we're lost in yearning, when we're lost in longing, that there is separation occurring as well. There's a separation from ourselves. There's a separation from our life. It's not to stamp out the yearning. It's not to push it away. It's not to think that there's anything wrong with it. And it's also noticing that if we buy into it or think that it's real, that we do live for that moment in a sense of separation. We are alienated from our own life. We've lost our life. And there is a sense of inauthenticity. Kind of a, a cousin of this is, um, is waiting, the phenomena of waiting for something to happen. Sitting on the edge of your cushion, maybe it doesn't look that way, maybe you're settled back, settled in, but kind of sitting on the edge of your cushion, waiting for something to happen waiting for something other than what is happening to happen. Maybe visions of, you know, what one thing should happen in practice, um, maybe having to do with things one has heard or with books or just with, dis- you know, desperation, thinking something's got to happen other than this endless boredom or whatever it might be. But waiting for the next moment to occur, you know, standing in, in line, in the food line, and waiting for this great excitement of, of getting to eat happen, which of course takes 10 minutes, you know, and then it's over, big thrill. But that sense of, of waiting is really, really interesting to happen, to, to notice. If one can notice it, that moment can be as good as the moment of eating, you know? That moment can be equally um, sensual. That, that moment can be equally connecting if we're aware of that moment in the same way that we might have a natural way of attending to eating. Mm. So just just to be aware of this phenomena of waiting. We do miss life itself when we think that there's something more important to come in the future. We do miss the life that we have right now. And whatever does happen to come in the future. We may not be around for it because we haven't really trained ourselves in being open and receptive and present. It's also a sense of not enoughness, a sense of something has to happen other than what's happening because of inner deprivation, a sense that what is happening simply isn't enough. The thing is that if we can fully connect with the moment that's happening, whatever it is that's occurring, whatever the content may be, we will touch enoughness. Mahabua, a um, teacher of mine who um, is, is in Thailand right now, he's 84, but he's still, still cooking, said that nirvana is the realm of enoughness. Yeah, liberation is knowing that there is enough in each moment, is another way of putting it. 
So this sense of completion in each moment, this sense of connection in each moment, it requires us to slow down. It requires us to work with that habit of rushing forward in order to get something better. So this is quite significant in practice, is allowing ourselves to come back, allowing ourselves to slow down, allowing ourselves to appreciate the beauty of the now. We get so caught and clouded and deluded by content that we don't touch the vibrancy of life that can be lived in the here and now. That is exactly what our hearts are yearning for. But we get so clouded by phenomena, by how things look, by how things appear to be, by the strength of the inner emotions, by the strength of the thoughts that can happen, that we forget, you know, we really just forget that what we need can only be found in the here and now and doesn't have anything to do with content. But we get so clouded by phenomena, by how things look, by how things appear to be, by the strength of the inner emotions, by the strength of the thoughts that can happen, that we forget, you know, we really just forget that what we need can only be found in the here and now and doesn't have anything to do with content. There are ways to encourage the development of authenticity in our lives. The most fundamental way is to simply notice when inauthenticity is happening. I think what I just described probably describes for most of us a lot of different mind moments throughout any given day. So it's kind of a full-time job just to notice inauthenticity, and this can be enough. However, there are ways as well to develop authenticity in a positive way. I was speaking a little bit more about the negative way of observing inauthenticity, which immediately moves us into authenticity. But to actively cultivate authenticity, there are some ways to do this too. To be authentic requires commitment, mindfulness, and investigation of our lives. Commitment to awakening, a really clear commitment to waking up, which has to do with reordering our priorities, noticing what we value, noticing what's most important for us, and then living our life in the service of this commitment to full awakening. practicing to the best of our ability, mindfulness. An aspect of mindfulness is acceptance. So seeing if it's possible from moment to moment to accept how things are in the moment. If we can do this, there is a growing and a knowing of authenticity because we're connected with the reality of life. We're connected with how things are in the present moment. And the immediate um, expression of this is an inner authenticity. Investigating, really encouraging a don't-know mind, 
as much as possible throughout our day, as much as possible throughout our life, encouraging ourselves to not hold on to the mind that thinks it knows or thinks it's supposed to know, seeing if we can more and more encourage an inner receptivity, a mind that is open to learning, open to being taught by life. A big part of investigation has to do with interest, bringing interest into our ordinary life, into whatever it is that's occurring. This is not conceptual. Conceptual investigation has to do with something along the lines of, I should look at this, or I should investigate this. But interest kind of breaks through that. Interest is being interested in however which way life is expressing itself. So even boredom can be really interesting if we allow ourselves to play really close attention to it. Oftentimes we get swayed by things and we put a glossy term over it. You know, this is happening or that is happening. Anger is happening, boredom is happening, whatever it might be. And then we don't look at the actual reality of things. Investigation is the encouragement to go underneath the label to be able to explore the actualness of life. To be authentic, there does need to be a cutting away of any degree of deception, especially of inner deception, encouraging ourselves to live our lives with simplicity, which is not so easy in this very complex world. And the way modern life is today with the calendars and, you know, the appointments, it's very different than than the way things used to be. Not to glorify the way things used to be at all, because obviously this practice has been around for 2,500 years with good reason. Things were not so hot 2,500 years ago either. However, I think that the challenges change from era to era, and according to the culture. And um, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to live in a simple way in the world the way it is today. So I think it takes, again, this commitment to ourselves, this commitment to waking up, this commitment to really valuing certain things in our life so that we can get behind our life with some degree of simplicity seeing if we can, with others, in our relationship with others, be as straightforward as possible, as direct as possible. There's this word I've kind of recently discovered in the culture called spin, where there seems to be this thing of, I'm sure you you guys probably know about it more than me, but there seems to be this this thing of, saying things with a spin on it so that it's seen in a particular way so that the person who's doing the spinning can get something out of it. Practice doesn't have to do with spin. Now, this is an anti-spin approach to life. (laughs) So inwardly, no spin. And definitely in our relationships, seeing if we can trust our relationships a little bit more and trust ourselves, even if we don't trust the relationships, trust ourselves a little bit more to be more direct, be more um, straightforward, um, be maybe a little bit more simple in our communication, aware of the times we want to get something out of a particular relationship. 
noticing if we're relating to people in such a way as we're treating them somewhat like a commodity, you know, that we have to get something out of them. And instead, you know, seeing if we can just kind of be in love whatever relationship we're in. Um, you know, in, in other words, see if we can extend something that is important to us, seeing if we can extend certain qualities of heart so that there's an interchange instead of maybe both people trying to get something out of the other. Makes life a lot more simpler as well. It really is a cultural habit to pretend that things are other than the way that they are. And advertising very much encourages this. I found this really great thing in the paper once. Um, Finland, I guess, as a country, is, um, is trying to work with this dimension of deceptive advertising. Finland bars McDonald's ad. A Finnish consumer court banned a television advertisement for McDonald's, saying it exploits the loneliness of a child, a court official said. The advertisement shows a young boy unhappily surveying an empty apartment into which his parents apparently plan to move. Despair turns to joy when he sees a McDonald's on the other side of the street, and the happy ending shows the boy eating in the restaurant. The court said the advertisement could give the impression that McDonald's products could replace friends or lessen loneliness. <laughs> so it was barred. This, this, this uh, advertisement was actually barred from Finland. But, you know, how, did this, how does this come about? We all um, can understand this in some way, uh, that there is this substitution that occurs thinking that certain things can substitute, can actually um, be nourishing, that of course are not. And to understand this for ourselves, I think is really, really important. Another way to nourish authenticity is by taking responsibility for our own reactions. Yeah? Not to say that, um, that we don't get into really tough situations in relationships at times. At the same time, to recognize that if we can take responsibility for our own reactions, there is a sense of inner empowerment. There is a sense of inner authenticity. We don't have to get as lost in blame, which is really a dead-end road. To take responsibility for the reactions that are occurring allows us to take our life back, in a sense, to really live our life from the inside out. This is something by um, Portia Nelson. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. In short, chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. 
I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> Ananda, who is um, one of the disciples of the Buddha, the Buddha's main attendant, uh, talked about taking refuge in one's own experience. And this is another way to develop inner authenticity, is recognizing the refuge of one's own experience. Oftentimes we're so busy trying to find refuge elsewhere that we forget that the best refuge, really the only refuge, lies within. So Ananda said this after his best friend, who was named Sariputra, died, and after the Buddha died. So kind of his, his, his two main buddies died. He said this, The friend has passed away. The master, too, has gone. There is no friendship that equals unto this. Mindfulness directed body words. Since we've been working so much with the body, I I wanted to bring this out. Let me say it one more time. The friend has passed away, meaning Sariputra. The master, too, has gone, meaning the Buddha. There is no friendship that equals unto this. Mindfulness directed body words. So really recognizing the refuge of living in one's own body, that there is an enormous friendship in living in one's own body. Of course, it's equally important to know our own mind, but the body is so fundamental, the body is is so elemental, that to recognize the importance of living in our own skin, our own bodies, Um, is really, really important. We may also, in terms of this reflection about authenticity, we may want to look at the ways that we compromise in our lives. The ways that emotions, because of being so strong and so appearing to be so intimidating, Sometimes we make compromises that we find out that we're not happy with because of fear. Sometimes we don't do what we really know we need to do, what we really know we want to do, and then we find ourselves living a different kind of life than we had expected. So really looking at, I think this is where the realm of emotions comes in, because of looking at how because we can be so intimidated and frightened by our fear, or intimidated and frightened by our anger, or loneliness, or sense of alienation, or whatever it may be, we don't act in the ways that we know we need to act. And so it's really important in this kind of reflection to see if we can notice when we do need to act, even if there is a strong emotion occurring. You know, if we know what needs to be done, it's really a practice to take on to do it anyway. You know, to do it anyway, even 
if the emotion is really strong. In other words, there's something, there's a wisdom that is underneath emotion. Emotions come and go and have to be listened to, have to be embraced, but at the same time do not need to be bowed down to. So in the ways that we know that we need to live an authentic life, a life that has integrity in it, a way that is not limiting, just to look at whether we're so frightened by our emotions that we don't do what we know we need to do. Other times it's really important to recognize that we don't know what to do and to be willing to not act, to be willing at times to not speak, to really sit until we find out for ourselves what we actually need to do. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. He or she is present and can welcome all things. So sometimes we need to just be in the mode of welcoming, of not moving, of being really patient until we know clearly what the wise action is. Authenticity has no one form to it. Uh, it's it's um, not a model. There's not a model that we want to try to fit ourselves in and then operate from that place. It has to do with allowing wisdom to flow, but allowing wisdom to flow from the inside. So we don't want to get stuck on particular forms or ideals of how authenticity should look. Some years ago, Michael and I were at a family party, and my, our nephew was probably about five years old at that time, and he had captured some little frogs. He had some frogs in a, in a, you know, in a little thing, the way, the way sometimes little boys do, or little girls too. The night before we had, were at this party, um, Michael and I had watched a documentary on political prisoners. So when I saw these frogs, I um, kind of was over-identifying with these frogs and linking them to the political prisoners. So I immediately got it into my head that I had to free the frogs. <laughs> so I lifted it up, and of course the frogs were thrilled to death and, you know, and went on their way. Of course, what happened afterwards was total trauma. You know, my sister really upset with me, um, my nephew um, crying. You know? And if I'd taken five minutes to investigate, probably the frogs would have been fine. And, you know, I'm sure we could have come to some understanding about how the frogs did need to be released. But this, this you know, this kind of blindly uh, reacting, 
the consequences were really not so great. Everyone forgave me pretty quickly. But it was this kind of like trying to fit an ideal or fit a model that is, is easy to fall into. Being present is a gateway. It's a gateway into liberation because when we're present, we're in contact with reality, we're in contact with the truth, and it's only the truth that sets us free. This is true. Authenticity is an expression of the path, and it is the path itself. The fruit of mindfulness, a fruit of mindfulness, is the freedom to be oneself, not coerced, not pushed around by our inner reactions, not caught by having to present ourselves unconsciously or consciously in particular ways. In touching our own experience, we have a chance to touch true wisdom. We can meet our anxiety with calm. We can meet our agitation with equanimity. It opens up choice to us in our life. It opens up our options. And it allows us to be vulnerable. It allows us to be vulnerable in life. Seeing vulnerability as a true strength. Seeing living without our usual defenses as a true strength. In living our own life, we open to life itself. In not being centered in ourselves, we find ourselves less alienated. In other words, in letting go of self, in opening to life, we find ourselves naturally less alienated, less isolated, and less preoccupied. To know our own experience allows us to open up to all experience. It's, it's the gateway into all experience. From my breath, we naturally move into the breath. From my pain, my suffering, we naturally move into suffering in the world, pain in the world. It all becomes our own. From a personal orientation in life, through knowing our own experience, we also know a universal orientation in life. We also know connection. When you become you, meditation becomes meditation. When you are you, you see things as they are, and you become one with your surroundings. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings be free from all forms of agitation. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.